All right. Galatians 5. So uh, we have come to this current place in the book of Galatians after five and a half chapters, <clears throat> after uh, many months of Paul uh, initially defending his apostleship. Uh, you remember that when the Judaizers had come to town, they had thrown the, his apostolic authority into doubt in their minds. So that if, if his apostolic authority was self-appointed, if he was not appointed by Christ, there's no reason that they should listen to him. And so Paul had to defend himself. He had to establish the fact that he was indeed chosen by Christ. And also he was empowered by Christ to work miracles among them and to preach the gospel. So it began with him defending uh, himself, which is an awkward place uh, to be. Um, and then he began to confront and rebuke and correct these believers for adopting the law of Moses and the Ten Commandments as a means, as a way to become personally righteous. And so they had gotten mixed up in all of this because of these Jewish false teachers that we know of as the Judaizers, who convinced the Galatians that if they were to live a holy life, if they were to be pleasing to God according to his standard, they would have to start keeping the law of Moses. They'd have to start observing the Ten Commandments. But in our discussion of that, Paul has very clearly proven that the law itself has fully run its course. It's fulfilled the purpose for which God designed it. He demonstrates that God never intended for the law to be a means for righteousness, Galatians 3.21, but it's always been a tool to lead sinners to righteousness through faith in Christ. That's Galatians 3.24. And after a sinner comes to Christ through faith, Paul says, the law no longer has a use. Galatians 3.25. And Paul said that he himself had to die to the law in order to live for God. That's Galatians 2.19. And death being that which severs a relationship. He says, my relationship to the law, he said, through the death of Christ has severed it. And then Paul also demonstrated that the death to the law was necessary for all believers, Romans 7, 1 through 6. So now, when he says, I had to die to the law that I might live to God, uh, it's the same way of saying that in order to live for God, in order to make it possible, he says, I had to die to the law. Okay? And Paul says that through Christ we all have, through death. And so Paul commands the Galatians, he commands all believers alike, to, in Galatians 5.1, to stand fast in the liberty with which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again to a yoke of bondage, the bondage of the law, Galatians 5.1. As we made our way to Galatians 5.16, Paul uh, issued a number of warnings and dangers involved in law-keeping. Now, you can visit those on your own time. Um, We went through them. But right in the middle of that, Paul addressed what it is that the Galatians were after, but were going about it in the wrong way. And I think that he brings it up in the middle of all this because they've taken quite a beating by Paul for the last five and a half chapters, rebuking, confronting. You know, he's even a little bit of name calling almost. You know, you, oh foolish Galatians. He says, who has bewitched you? And uh, so they've taken this tongue lashing from Paul, which was well deserved. But I think Paul needs, thinks they needed some relief. So he says, he says, not by the law rather, but for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. Galatians chapter 5, 
verse 5. He's saying righteousness doesn't come by way of keeping the law, but by trusting the Holy Spirit. As we grow in that relationship of trust, then righteousness is the result over time. And then Paul swings the conversation away from you know, the, the confrontation, the rebuke, and the correction to one of positive encouragement in verse 16. He says, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of your flesh. Verse 16. And so it was here that we turn to the book of Romans for uh, you know, some clarity on what it is to walk in the Spirit, because here in Galatians, Paul assumes that his audience knows what he's talking about. In fact, uh, later on in the chapter, he said, uh, as I discussed with you when I was there. Okay. But he didn't have that discussion with us here, right? So we turn to the book of Romans, where Paul actually does unpack those things, where he doesn't assume that his audience knows what it is. So we visited Romans for more clarity, where Paul explains to us how, how it's even possible that broken sinners, as Paul says, sold under sin, can even walk in the Spirit, saying that the believer died with Christ, which he says ended our servitude to sin. Paul uses the word reign, same word used of a king that reigns over something. So before Christ, sin reigned over us. But when we came to Christ by faith, we were united with Christ in his death. And then that relationship was crushed. It was severed. And then with Christ, being united with him, we were risen with him. He made us alive to God, Paul says, that, so that to make it possible for us to live a righteous life. Now understand that through salvation, righteousness is a potential thing. It's possible now, but it's not actual. That comes through the ministry of the Spirit. So Paul then begins to lay responsibility upon us, and he says that we must reckon these things to be true about us. Our death to sin, being alive to God, it's true. It's a fact. Now he uses the word reckon, and uh, the word is an accounting term, but it's better for us to say, I think, in modern vernacular, to say, to bank on it, to put our full trust in the reality of it. Okay. So we have to reckon it to be true of us, and then, because this is true of us, he says that we must reject our desires for sin. The idea is when sin's desire comes within you, you have an obligation to tell it no. Its reign over you is ended, so legally, rightly, you can tell it no. You can refuse it. And the other responsibility he lays upon us is that while yielding our bodies, or while saying no, we should yield our bodies to God as his instruments for righteousness. And last week we mentioned that uh, what is it that we don't understand about the word instrument? Do you guys remember that? Who is listening? Instruments don't do things on their own. Okay. The instrument is wielded by someone else. And in this case, the great physician, amen, who wants to do heart surgery on us. And uh, we need to yield our bodies to him as instruments for righteousness. That's all in Romans 6. Those are the facts of redemption, some of our responsibilities. But then in Romans chapter 7, we get a glimpse of Paul's life as he was trying to live the Christian life in his own strength. How well did it go? Just like it did for you. It was a mess. He, he discovered that willpower alone okay, was not sufficient to live the Christian life. He says, I will to do good. But he says, when I go to do it, that's not what happens. But the evil that I will not to do that's the thing that I do. Okay, so his, 
His will obviously had been redeemed, renewed through the work of salvation. So the will was desiring what God desired. But when he set out to do it, in his own strength, he fell on his face. Okay? Now it's here in Paul's experience that we, we see the necessity of rejecting our own strength, of saying no to ourselves. Okay? You don't have what it takes to accomplish God's righteousness. Don't even try. Okay? But it's not until Romans 8 that Paul experiences a new principle to live by. And I say principle because as we looked at last week, Romans 8, 2 says, talks about the law of the Spirit and the law of sin and death. These aren't written laws. These are principles by which control the outcome of something. It's talking about us, okay, the outcome of our lives. Paul says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, this new principle, he says, has made me free from the law of sin and death. I didn't make myself free. That's what I was trying in Romans chapter 7. I didn't make myself righteous. That's what I was trying in Romans chapter 7. But I failed. I found myself back in the law of sin and death. But the, the Spirit set me free. And then he also says that the righteous demands of the law are, were not fulfilled by me. He says they were fulfilled in me. In me. The preposition is important. He says it's by the Holy Spirit as I walked in his strength. I walked in the Spirit, Romans 8, 4. So Paul went from dependence on his own strength to resist the desires of sin and to live a righteous life in chapter 7 over to 8 to depending on the Holy Spirit to resist his flesh and then to live a life that is pleasing to God. Okay? Dependence on the Spirit achieves both of those things, not just one of those things. He achieves it all. We mentioned Philippians 2.13 last week. It's God who works in us both to will and to do or perform what is his good pleasure. Through salvation, the will is redeemed, but the body's not empowered. That comes through the Holy Spirit. So either way, it's God who works in us both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Now, actually, both of these principles are mentioned in Galatians 5, but they're not sandwiched together like they are in Romans 8. So it's easy to read over them and miss it. So trusting in the Spirit for righteousness is verse 5 of Galatians 5. And then resisting the desires of the flesh by the Spirit are in verse 16. So you can remove everything in between, crunch them together, and you have both principles for Christian living. So walking in the Spirit is a matter of personal righteousness and holiness, which has everything to do with becoming like Jesus. We have to understand that it is the image of Christ which the Spirit is fashioning us into. It's not morality, because okay, then it would come down to whose version of morality, right? Does our culture right now have multiple versions of morality? Okay, so Christ is the standard, and the Holy Spirit is trying to make us like Christ. But we have to understand something, because as the culture continues to, I would say, infect the church, okay, we have different ideas about all of these things. Becoming conformed to the image of Christ is not an option for us. It's not an option. The scriptures are clear. Paul said, do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members, your body, as instruments of righteousness to God. Romans 6, 13. Again, Paul said, for God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7. And finally, God commands, be holy for I am holy. 1 Peter 1, 16. Now, 
I could go on and on and on with commands like that in the scriptures. Christians must be holy. The author of Hebrews says that unless we are holy, we will not see the Lord. We cannot see him. We never will, Hebrews 12, 14. So righteousness is required of the believer. I think it's important to note note that for 2,000 years, the Jews could not achieve it. They tried and they tried and they failed. We have that history in Exodus through Malachi. It's actually 1,400 years. The law could not provide righteousness. Romans 8, 3 through 4, Galatians 3, 21 through 22. The Apostle Paul, with all of his learning, all of his discipline, he fell short of it, Romans 7, 14 through 25. And you and I have proven to be unsuccessful as well. Amen? Yeah. But it is required of us. And so what we've done in our desperation is we've tried everything that doesn't work. I don't know what it is about human nature to always turn to things that are impotent. You know, we've, we've tried to be more disciplined, haven't you? You've wanted to be more disciplined. We've tried. Some people right now are observing Lent, perhaps, hoping for some spiritual benefit. Trying. We've read various books on how to be a better us. Self-help is a big thing in the West. We've fasted and meditated. Maybe you haven't fasted. It's not a real popular thing in the West. It's very good for Westerners, though. You've listened to the latest teachers on the subject, as you are this morning. Okay. Perhaps you've gotten rid of your smartphone in a way to diminish your availability to what your flesh desires. You've disconnected the internet. Uh, some of you have just gotten off social media. I think good choice. Okay. You've made different friends. You've removed every reasonable provision for your flesh. As you ought, Paul says, make no provision for your flesh. You've limited temptation in your life. You've even tried to keep the law to resist the desires of your flesh. And you've tried to keep the law as a means to pleasing God. But in the end, all of those things were a failure. So what are you to do? How do we resist the desires of our flesh? And how do we live a holy life for the glory of God when every method proves a failure? Paul says, I say then, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. He says, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, Romans 8, 4. It's everywhere in the New Testament. He says, but we all are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the spirit of the Lord, 2 Corinthians 3, 18. And Paul says, for, he, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, Romans 8, 28. So listen carefully, what God has predestined, he will accomplish through his Holy Spirit and by nothing else. There there is no other means to becoming more like Christ. There's no other provision to becoming holy. It just does not exist. It's not there. God meets his own demands of us by providing his means for it. The, The righteousness that God requires of us is produced in us as we walk in the power of the Spirit. There's no other way. There's no other way. Some of you guys have been in the faith for a long time. Some of you a long time. Praise the Lord. If you were to look back and chronicle all of the ways that you have tried, what a miserable memory that is. Isn't that true? And then one day you said enough is enough with me and my methods. It's time to yield in submission 
to God the Holy Spirit, to trust him and obey him. And then you noticed something began to happen. He began to walk in a way that you were confident was a blessing to God, a good example to others. Yeah. I mean, who else could make us holy but God the Holy Spirit? Who could do that? He's God's means for God's righteousness. And you know, the crazy thing is, is this has always been true, but it's the realization finally dawns upon us after we've experienced our own weakness for the hundredth time. It's worth saying again, after centuries of moral failure and disloyalty to God, it's when God revealed to Israel what his plans were with the new covenant. Okay. Listen to, it's a prophecy from Ezekiel, similar to the, the, the one given in Jeremiah 31. God says, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Did you catch that? After centuries of failure and disloyalty to God, God says, I'm going I'm to give you a new heart. That's clearly salvation. And then I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. God, the Holy Spirit will indwell you. And he says, and he will cause you to walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. That's Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. And then, of course, Jesus at the Last Supper, he introduces the new covenant. This is my blood of the new covenant. And we look at all that is contained in that. We have salvation and we have sanctification. And ultimately, we'll have glorification. Amen? Yeah. So in the midst of their failure, God promised success by way of his spirit. This also occurred with Paul after enduring much failure and disappointment in his faith. As he walked in his own strength, he discovered that it is the spirit that sets him free and that causes him to walk in holiness as he yields to him. And I'm confident that you've discovered a great deal of your own moral weakness, experienced failure and a lack of holiness. Is my confidence accurate? <laughs> Paul would say to you, walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of your flesh. Through him, you can reject the desires of your flesh and you can be energized to holiness. But don't miss the language of Galatians 5.16. In that text, the, the, the believer is commanded to walk in the spirit to achieve those results. You're commanded. The Holy Spirit doesn't automatically strengthen you to live righteously. But I'll tell you, if you're too proud to submit to his authority, he will let you endure failure until you do, as Paul experienced in Romans 7. So holiness is not automatic. Okay, we're commanded to walk in his strength, to yield to his leadership. And we're commanded to cooperate with his prompting, with his leading. Okay? We're commanded to push ourselves away from our own methods and to adopt his. Okay? So this is all most certainly an issue of personal righteousness. It is required. It's required. But it is a requirement that comes with great promises. It does. If you, what does he say? If you walk in the spirit, you will not do what? You will not fulfill the lust of your flesh. Okay? It's him that achieves these things in us. So look at verse 17. This is, uh, this is a lot like much of Romans 7. It explains what was going on inside of Paul as he was not gaining the upper hand. He says, for the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. As I told first service, that last sentence, I hate it because he's talking about what I wish in my flesh. 
He's saying after salvation, you still wish it. That's how yucky we are trying to identify with the children in the audience. We're, we're broken. We, we still have the lust of the flesh with us. I know that you know, some holiness teachers have taught that uh, that all can, can go away. I realize Paul said that the old man in us, the King James says, waxes worse and worse. The New King James says, grows. He becomes more intolerant. He, he becomes more demanding of us. He doesn't gain in power. You know, children really don't have any power, the little ones, but they can be so demanding. And what does an adult have to say? I know we're not fond of the word in our culture. It's called no. Yeah, it's demanding. It's, it's wanting. And it is what we wish a part of us, a part of us. So the flesh here is a reference to our sin nature. And, you know, and according to Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 7, it's not subject to the righteousness of God nor indeed can it be. That's a scary thought, isn't it? it it's, it's a part of us. It's in us. It's an unredeemable entity. Okay? It's relentless. It's a helpless foe that lives in us. It, it, it constantly will forever until we're separated from it. Uh, when we go in God's presence, it will constantly be opposed to the will of God. The Spirit, on the other hand, is a reference to the Holy Spirit. It's not our spirit. Okay? And God's nature is opposed to our sin nature. And he says that the flesh is said to lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. It means that each is trying to suppress and subdue the other. It's, it's like inside you, two competitors are playing king of the hill, trying to conquer you, trying to conquer your affections, trying to conquer your obedience, constantly going on, always trying to suppress the other, always trying to gain the upper hand, always. It's always going on. And it started, if you remember, some of you that were raised in the church, you don't have this, you know, this testimony to where you went into the world and then you came back to the Lord really for the first time, got saved, and then, you know, you experienced. Some of you don't have that. You came to the faith at a young age. Praise God. I a friend of mine said, I don't want my kids to have a testimony. I, I don't want my kids to have a testimony. I don't, they don't need to experience the world. Um, what a dreadful thing. God never intended that. Okay? But many of us, when we got saved, we realized that things didn't really get easier. Okay? Jesus, through the Spirit, took residence in us. And when he got here, there was somebody living there. And that was our rotten self. And it's full-on combat inside of us. Every day, all the time, okay, all the time. Some Bible teachers have described this as, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, uh, something like the Hulk. Uh, it can get ugly, can't it? We can be ugly. Just a war. One of them, all of them are seeking supremacy and control. But Paul says that control should be yielded to the Holy Spirit. So Christ, you understand, he didn't just die for our sins, to pay for our sin, to secure our forgiveness to justify us from all sin legally, he gave us the Spirit to enter us and challenge the authority that was there. That's amazing. Spirit came in to challenge the authority that was in our life so that by his strength, we could live under his dominion rather than the oppression of sin. Okay. Thank God that he's there. Yeah. He dwells there for the sake of righteousness. So if you want to live righteously, Paul says, you must walk in the Spirit. You must yield to that authority. You must obey him. Verse 18, he says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. 
Does that statement seem a little random in the text there? I think it does, not in the context of all of Galatians, but in this right here, it seems a little random. Uh, A.T. Robertson, Greek scholar, says, we would expect Paul to say, if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the flesh, rather than saying you're not under the law. That's kind of the feel that we get, because he's been talking about the problems with the flesh. But he says you're not under the law if you're led by the Spirit. And again, to be under something means to be under its dominion, under its power. So Paul's statement here is in response to what the Judaizers were teaching the Galatians, which went something like this. If you're going to get the appetites of your flesh under control, you need to be subject to the law, thinking that the law is what keeps people from being naughty. Now, I recognize some new faces. I gave many illustrations over the last couple months as to why the law does not help your sinful passions. The law doesn't help you keep them under control. And one of the illustrations I gave is with the speed limit. That's a stated law, isn't it? Right? Unless you're a soccer mom. It's a stated law. How many times have you noticed the speed limit controlling your gas pedal? It doesn't. It just tells you what the limit is, and then it communicates a violation of it. But it does not control. It doesn't control your speed. Who does? The sinner behind the wheel. That's right. That's who controls. That's not what the law does. Okay? Paul says the only way to resist the lust of your flesh is to be subject to the Holy Spirit. Okay? I want to remind you of some things here to bring this together. Remember, Paul said that the law is weak through the flesh. Romans 8, 3. The problem isn't with the law. The problem is with us. We're broken. In fact, he says the law strengthens sin in us. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. That is one of the most eye-opening passages on the law in all of Scripture. He says what gives law, or what gives sin its strength, he says, is the law. It's a very interesting statement. 1 Corinthians 15, 56. He says the law provokes in us all manner of evil desire, Romans 7, 8. If you have a King James, he says concupiscence. How many of you have ever used that in a sentence? By the law is concupiscence. He says the law revives sin, Romans 7, 9. So the idea is that law provokes the flesh to be even more sinful and powerful. So if you have a sin problem, which you do, which we do, Paul says do not subject yourself to the law but to the Holy Spirit. If you subject yourself to the law, Paul says that you will actually be worse off because you will invigorate your sin nature. You will provoke it and strengthen it. And how many of you need that in your life? I need stronger flesh. (laughs) Paul says everything was fine without the law, but when I received the commandment from the law, sin was revived and it killed me. Romans 7, 8 through 11 killed me. So if you have a death wish, morally speaking, then just subject yourself to the law. That's what Paul is saying. But for those of you who would like to resist your flesh unto holiness, Paul would say, walk in the Spirit, be led by the Spirit, trust in His strength, stay away from the law. He says, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law, not under its dominion. So when you look at Romans chapter 7, and you look at all of Galatians, Listen, living by the flesh or living by the law will give you the same results in the end, which is condemnation and death. The illustration that Paul gives in Romans 7, 1 through 6 is that through death you've been removed from the dominion of the law, 
so that you can serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter, referring to the law. Okay. But as he teaches us, life and peace and righteousness are promised to those who walk in the spirit. Yeah, good stuff. He makes us holy. He makes us righteous as we depend on him. So I think it's important to note that if sin is getting the upper hand in your life, it only leads to one conclusion. Okay? You're not depending, you're not trusting in the Spirit. And if your life is not gaining a likeness to Jesus, it's the same thing. It may be symptomatic of being under the law, by the way. But what is happening is God is using your failures to communicate something to you. You have substituted his means for your means, and it won't, you won't succeed. He's allowing you to experience failure to know when you're walking in the flesh so that you can see the difference when you walk in the spirit. It's important, okay? It's to wake you up so you can learn to reject your own strength and depend on him through faith. Now, next week, we'll look very closely at the works of the flesh. And I want to look closely at them because I want to avoid all confusion and cultural justification. I think that's so essential right now. As I said, the culture is infecting the church, and we're beginning to think that way rather than looking to the scriptures and letting God define to us what is false, what is wrong. And then we're going to look at the subtle ways the flesh manifests itself in our lives, and then, of course, we'll get to the fruit of the Spirit and, uh, and how that is manifested. So before I pray, uh, if anybody is in need of any prayer uh, in this regard, uh, I'll be up here up front to pray with you. And I don't know if any of my elders are still here, but anyway, we'll go before the Lord. Why don't you stand up and we'll pray. Well, Father, thank you, Lord, again for your word. I pray that for all of us in this room, Lord, that all of these truths that you have brought together, Lord, that we would indeed understand it spiritually, and then it would be rooted in us and our convictions. And that by your grace, Lord, that you would help us to walk in the Spirit. Lord, help us to reject not only the desires of our flesh, but help us to reject our own means and resources to counter it. Lord, help us to know day by day what it is to be in relationship to the Spirit, being subject to Him, being led by Him. So, Lord, that you would be glorified. Lord, we want to become useful to your glory. And we want our lives to be beneficial to others. So, Lord, help us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We'll love you guys. Lord bless you.